This is an ABC podcast. I'm very pleased to say Nicholas Hammond is here today. Nicholas Hammond is an actor who began his life on screen at the age of 12, performing in movies and TV shows that now seem to be permanently seared into the world's imagination. Nicholas was one of the stranded boys in Peter Brook's film of The Lord of the Flies. He played Friedrich von Trapp, one of the von Trapp family singers in The Sound of Music. In the 70s, he was the first Spider-Man to appear on screen. And more recently, he played Sam Wanamaker in Quentin Tarantino's movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He even had a walk-on role in The Brady Bunch, which has gone on to pop culture history. Nicholas Hammond is now about to return to Rogers and Hammerstein as one of the stars of their musical version of Cinderella, which is about to begin its tour around Australia. Hello, Nicholas. Welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. It's really a pleasure to be here. I want to start with your mum. She's <laughs> still with us today, which is amazing. She is. She's an actress, has been an actress herself. Tell me about her role at the beginning of her our acting career with the BBC. What role did she have with the B back in its earliest years? Well, she, when she graduated from the Royal Academy in London, she, the very first job she got was doing uh, radio plays at the BBC. And my mother had a wonderful voice and still does. So she, she was one of their regulars for the, the weekly play of the week, which was enormously popular in those days. And then she went into film. Uh, She's a very beautiful young woman. And um, she made three or four very successful films. And then she was cast in a in a smash hit comedy on on the West End in London called Arsenic and Old Lace. And she was in that for almost two years. So she she had a varied career uh, all right through the war years. And um, I, I think would have continued on much longer if she hadn't met my father. When she was in the BBC, was it her job to sort of do those looking at now on the BBC? That's exactly right. In fact, funnily enough, she was the very first on-air television presenter on the BBC because the BBC in like 1939, they started television before it was anywhere else, before it was in America. They had a footprint of about 50 miles around London. That was it. But my mother and I think one other young woman were the two that would say, and at eight o'clock, we'll be watching such and such. And at 9.30, we'll have the news. <laughs> then that all got shut down during the war and didn't get picked up again until afterwards. But she was. She was an on-air. I've, I've seen the clippings from the, the newspapers then of, you know, this is the face that's going to introduce you to what programs are on television tonight. You mentioned she was on stage mm-hmm. in the West End during the war years. Many of the theatres famously stayed open, mm-hmm. even during the Blitz. What does she tell you about performing during the Blitz on stage? Well, she said it was fascinating. I think it was a great thing that she was doing something like that. But, I mean, obviously her mother and other people urged her to leave London, as so many did, but it was her life and she loved doing it. Kind of a duty as well in a way, isn't it? It was a duty and Mm. and it was fascinating because she said when the war first broke out, well, at least when the bombing first started in London, the air raid sirens would go off and they would stop the play and make an announcement that, you know, there's an air raid and anyone who wishes to leave, go to a bomb shelter. And for the first week or two, you know, a a portion of the audience would get up and go. After two weeks, no one would leave. So they just basically stopped making the announcement. I mean, they'd hear the siren and if you wanted to leave, you could, but they just kept going and the play kept going. And I mean, sometimes there was one time I remember my mother said, 
the bombs were dropping so close and shaking the whole theater. Then she went back up to her dressing room and all the windows had been blown out in the dressing room. There was debris everywhere, you know, and they just took it in their stride. It was amazing. Tell me about how her apartment in London was destroyed. Yeah, yeah, that that was, to me, a, a terrifying story. When When she recounts it, you know, again, my mother has amazing kind of English grit but, you know, she was only 19 and she left the theatre and I think she said she went and had a drink with some friends. So it was about one o'clock in the morning when she got back to her flat and there had been a raid and there was a huge bomb crater in the ground where her apartment had been. So if she hadn't been on stage that night, that would have been the end of her because everything was gone. Her dog was killed, her, all her clothes were gone, everything. The apartment building just didn't exist anymore. And um, there she was, one o'clock in the morning, 19 years old. All she had in the world was the dress she was wearing. Where did she go? There was an old actress, older actress, I should say, who had been sort of a mentor to my mother named Hilda Bailey. And she thought, well, I don't know what to do. I'll go to Hilly's. And she knocked on her door, you know, now in the middle of the night and said, you know, my place has been bombed. And Hilly said, there's only one thing to do at a time like this. Call Harrods. And she took her inside. <laughs> they rang Harrods. Some night person answered at Harrods. And she said, I'm Miss Bailey, and I'm here with Miss Bennett, who is the star of Arsenic and Old Lace. And she's been bombed. And they just said, yes, and what will she require? <laughs> and they took down for, you know, a new day outfit, a new night outfit, night clothes, underclothes, whatever. And they said, the van will be there first thing in the morning, Miss Bailey. And she said, now she can't pay because everything's gone. That's no problem. She can pay us whenever it's convenient for her. Oh, how delightful. I know. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's just Don't just you wish it was thing. still like Don't that? Don't you wish it was still like that indeed? Your father came from a very different background. Your dad's a military man. And you and I could probably talk about your dad's career for probably a good half of this program <laughs> if, if, if we had the time. He, he was a, quite a senior military man uh, mm. with the United States military. Tell me how he met your mum. Well, he, he was. He was a colonel in the army at that point, a very young colonel, I might say. And he, um, uh, Eisenhower spotted him and picked him to be his adjutant, his adjutant general in London because... During the planning for D-Day? This is during the planning for D-Day. And, of course, that was something that was such a secret. Nobody knew about it. He wasn't able to tell my mother about it when he met my mother. But that is exactly what was going on, is they were they were planning the Normandy invasion. And um, so he was working side by side uh, with... With um, General Eisenhower? With General Eisenhower. Wow. And um, wow. The, the story I always heard was is that because they were working such insane hours and my father always was an extremely diligent man. Uh, he, he taught me to never be late. And uh, apparently there was one time where Eisenhower simply said, Tom, you know, I don't think you've been to bed in four days. He said, I just want you to get out of here. You know, go, go have a beer, go home and sleep, go do something fun. I don't care. Just do something. And my father was walking out on the street in London and he just walked past this theatre that had this smash hit comedy playing, Arsenic and Old Lace. And he thought, that's what I should do. I should just forget all of this and just go and watch something fun and silly. And he went in and my mother walked out on the stage and that oh, was Oh, he it. was smitten. I know. And he really? was smitten. He became a stage door Johnny then, didn't well, he? Well, he sent his card backstage and my mother ah. saw it. Oh, some bloody yank. The last mm. thing in the world I'm interested in, you know. But my father was, if nothing, per, uh, he was persistent. 
And I think he actually managed to use somebody at, at Army headquarters to find out, like, what party my mother was going to be attending and what, you know, what dinner. And he managed to get himself invited to a few of these things. This was the advantage to being a flag officer in the Army. And um, little by little by little, uh, so by the end of the war, they were engaged. And very soon after the war ended, uh, I mean, like immediately after the war ended, they married. So then that meant you had to, once you arrived on the scene, Mm. the family moved to Paris because that's where the Supreme Army Headquarters was shaped, was what it was called. That was his his next assignment is once the war was over, he was sent to uh, Paris to be the military attaché at the American embassy there and one of his jobs was to be the American arm of setting up uh, the Supreme Headquarters for the Allied Powers of Europe. Which later became NATO. Which later became NATO and was based in Paris for a number of years. And then uh, when the sentiment towards Americans and towards all that changed, they moved to Brussels. So you would have memories then of oh, yes. in your early life of Paris. What do you remember of arriving in Paris as a, as I, a little boy? I, I can remember it very clearly. I, I Well, we, we came by ship. Uh, we came on the SS United States from New York, and I had no idea my father was fluent in French. I mean, he'd been at the École Militaire in Paris, you know, before the war. Uh, he was absolutely bilingual, and I didn't know that. And I'll never forget getting off the ship. I think I was six, and my father started talking, like, to the porters with the luggage and the taxi driver. And I thought, this is magic. You know, it's like my father is now speaking some language that I've never heard before, but everybody else here can understand him. And I thought if it were possible to admire my father anymore, <laughs> I, I did. And and it actually developed in me a love of languages and, and a love of French. And by the time we left Paris, my brother and I were both fluent in French and, and I still speak French and I, I, I love the language and I still love the country. Paris to me is sort of like a second home. What kind of a life did your parents have in Paris together? Because this was a good time to be an American in Paris. It was a it? very, very good time to be an American in Paris. And, and I mean, the very early years, I, I wasn't there for them. My brother was born in Paris, but uh, they were, you know, they had a, a house that was given to them and, you know, servants and that sort of thing. And, and the American community in Paris at that time was revered by the French, by all Europeans. They were the saviors of the free world. And, you know, so they were they were treated very well. They were, you know, people loved having them there. And, of course, they were very generous. And France was in a, you know, very depressed state economically. And the Americans brought lots of money. And the restaurants and the cafes and the nightclubs and all that flourished largely because of the influx of, of the overseas people. And, no, my, my parents always used to talk about that, you know, they were the young lions. Right. They were the young lions of, of Europe. And given that your mum had been an actress and was probably mm. used to associating with bohemians mm. and drinkers and smokers oh, yes. and uh, singers and, and what have you, how did your father as a military man fit in with that crowd? Well, I think the drinking and smoking was just fine, even with the military right. people. But, yeah, um, true. yes, I think my... I mean, this is where my father was slightly different from the, um, I think, the stereotype military officer because... Although he loved the Army, he was a third-generation Army officer himself, a third-generation West Point graduate. But he he loved the sort of diplomatic side of the military more. He loved the kind of problem-solving. And what we all found out many years later was that he had been very senior in military intelligence, which, again, 
uh, all through the Korean War. He was at G2, but he loved my mother's friends because that infusion of, of, of enthusiasm and humor and wonderful stories, and because Paris is so close to London, a lot of her theater friends would come over and visit for the weekend or we would take trips to England. And so there was always a kind of cross-pollination between the two cultures. My mother liked a lot of his military friends. And to this day, she's still friends with some of the widows of those army officers that were some of my father's best friends. And uh, so it was, a, it was a very interesting mix. And we never went to the army post schools. My parents always wanted us to go to the local schools and be completely embedded in the local culture. So my brother and I went to the École Internationale in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, and, and we, um, we both, that's, we were the only two people in the school who spoke English. And so we were just kind of chucked in at the deep end. And uh, within a couple of months, you're speaking French. We have to talk about Julie Andrews at this point, and this is well before The Sound of Music. Yes. Tell me how it was that Julie Andrews inspired you to become an actor. Well, it's an amazing story. I mean, so much of my life has been kind of astonishing coincidences, but as we were leaving Paris from the first trip, which was 1959, and we had a little layover in London, I suspect for my mother to see her friends, uh, before again catching the boat back to New York, and on our last night, my mother said, let's all go see a play. And we went down to the West End. And outside the Drury Lane Theatre was this enormous queue. And my mother went up, or my parents went up to say, what's going on? And they said, oh, they're waiting for cancellation tickets. Why? Because it is the very final performance ever of Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. This is it. If you don't see it tonight, you'll never see it. So my mother said, okay, we're joining the queue. And we got up to the front and there were two tickets left. And my mother and I, I can't remember how that decision was made, probably because I just insisted on it. She and I went, my brother, who didn't particularly care, with my father, they went to see another show. And the two tickets were miles apart. My mother was down in the stalls and I was way up in the back balcony or something at the age of nine <laughs> on my own. And, and in fact, I think of that with Cinderella when I see nine-year-olds sitting out there. But I'm, I was completely enthralled, of course, and loved what I saw. Not only loved the show, I thought Julie Andrews was like a miracle. You know, this person who could open their mouth and make that sound she could make. But also because I knew nothing about the theatre and I certainly knew nothing about English theatre, I didn't realise that 16 curtain calls and 30 bouquets of flowers <laughs> wasn't right. just what right. happened after every show. <laughs> and I thought, what a right. great job this is. <laughs> I want to do this when I grow up. And so I literally walked out of that, walked out of that theater thinking, I now know what I want to do. I want to do, I want to be one of those people up there. So we're jumping a little bit ahead in time now to 1963. Mm. Peter Brook, the great theatre no, 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 director. 61. 61. I was actually back. 11 when I, when I made Lord of the Flies. All right, well, it came out yeah. in 63. That's but, right. but, but when, oh, okay, so we're going to 61 then. 61 is when you were chosen to be one of the mm. child actors, the boy actors in The Lord of the Flies, yeah. an extraordinary uh, movie based on the book by uh, uh, William Golding. A group of boys marooned on a tropical island after a nuclear holocaust who all turned feral after several weeks and months on the, on, on the island. Mm. How did the great Peter Brook discover you for this one Again, of those boys? Again, we're talking coincidences. At that point, my father was back at the Pentagon, so we were in Washington. I still had the idea in my head, having seen Julie on the stage. 
I knew that's what I wanted to do. And one of the producers, one of the backers of Lord of the Flies was a Washingtonian, very wealthy barrister. And Peter Brook came to Washington because he'd been looking at boys in London. He'd looked at boys in New York. And obviously he knew in Washington there's a big expat community of of English and of Canadians and New Zealanders and Australians. And he just wanted boys who could sound English. And there was a tiny little thing in the newspaper saying British theatre director Peter Brook is here in Washington and he's looking for boys between the ages of 10 and 13 who can have English accents. And my mother read it out and said, oh, Nikki, there's something you could do. And I said, yeah, where do I go? And so I went and I met first the casting director and then the casting director introduced me to Mr. Brook. And then I was flown up to New York to screen test for uh, Peter Brook. And I was one of the very youngest in the film. He wanted a boy slight. He was screen testing me for Ralph, who was the lead. And it got down to between me and James Aubrey, who played it. And James was a better choice because James was 13. And he has to be a leader, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I was a very young 11-year-old. I'd just turned 11. And I was a very young 11-year-old and I was, I was small. And, I mean, physically, he made the right choice. But he asked me to be one of the choir boys instead, so I did that. And... Yeah, and that was my first job. So then a films. bunch of you boys then were sort of picked up mm. uh, and you're all from backgrounds where I don't think any of them or many many had been actors before, none certainly had, not on screen. None had done anything. He picked you up and took you off to an island off the coast of Puerto Rico. Yeah. Good God. And then you were – I think one of the other boy actors said of that production, it was almost a bit like Lord of the Flies itself because you were boys who were taken out of your normal day-to-day family homes mm. and you were there marooned on an island almost with each other. Was it as an, as anything like an ordeal? Was it an ordeal like it, like it was in the movie? No, it was, I mean, it was, it was fun is what it was. But I mean, of course it was, when I look back on it and I think, yeah, I mean, it was, it was 30 boys. There, no parents were allowed. I can't understand why the parents agreed to that, but they did. There were no parents allowed. The island was practically deserted. The United States Marines were using it for artillery practice, which they had to obviously uh, have a little hiatus while we were filming. Yeah, you'd want to double-check that, I reckon. <laughs> you would, yeah. But there was an abandoned pineapple factory that had gone broke, and so there was just this empty, concrete, huge building. That was where we lived. They, they got 30 army cots and put them canvas and timber cots and put them in rows like we were in an army barracks with mosquito nets over them, and that was it. So it was like a kind of a feral summer camp then, was it? It was like a very feral summer camp, halfway between prisoner of war camp and summer camp. Yeah, it was. Were you terrified at any point, though, during the making of that? Because there's like, you know, simulations of murder and... Uh... Um, no, I think because Peter Brook is kind of the genius he is, he, he knew exactly, even though he'd never made a film before, I think what he realised was... We were way too young and way too inexperienced to try to start talking to us in terms of actual character and motivation and all that. So basically what he did is it you're two teams. You know, there's Jack's team and there's Ralph's team. And it's like playing King of the Mountain. And it's like, okay, boys, you know, Jack's team, they've got they've got all the food up at the top of the mountain. You guys have got to get the food. Now, action. Right, And then we'd just have a big fake battle with sticks and spears and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was mainly fun. So not long after that, you landed the part of Friedrich 
yeah. in The Sound of Music. Friedrich yeah. von Trapp, one of the, the, the von Trapp family singers. Now, I read that they auditioned just about every child actor, performer mm. in Hollywood and beyond for that role. I, Mia Farrow auditioned mm-hmm. and didn't get a part. Leslie Ann Warren, Geraldine Chaplin, Terry Gar, Kurt Russell. I read that the Osmonds, members of the Osmonds auditioned for that. I'm sure they did. And, and, and I, they, they didn't get it. You, you, you won the part. That's I did. In, in fact, Kurt, I mean, Kurt Russell reminded me of that when we were doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, of course. Right, I'd yeah. forgotten. Yeah. He hasn't gotten over it right. yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, of course, I had been working on Broadway in a play with Sir Michael Redgrave playing his son. So I was kind of already in the swing of things in New York. Oh, so you went overawed by all of this thing. Well, that was the thing. Yeah. Because I was doing a play with, with Sir Michael and Sandy Dennis and Gene Wilder, uh, I kind of, you know, felt at that point that this was my world already. So at that point I'd signed with the William Morris Agency and when my agent said, you know, they want to audition you for this movie, I knew what The Sound of Music was because I'd heard the soundtrack to the uh, Broadway production But I thought, well, I'm not a singer and I'm not a dancer. But, you know, if they want me to say words, I might be able to do that. So I I did. I we'd gone skiing and I'd broken my arm and I'd knocked out two front teeth. So my arm was in a cast and I had no front teeth. This isn't sounding promising. Yeah, it didn't sound (laughs) promising. But I think that just gave me an attitude of, well, you know what? I've got nothing to lose here. And I walked in and here were all these kids who were like brilliant dancers and brilliant singers, a lot of whom I knew because I was going to the professional children's school in New York at that point. So I just thought, well, I'll just give it my best. And, you know, and they had a little Friedrich scene and I did the Friedrich scene. It was a scene between Friedrich and Maria. And I did it and, you know, it was a series of callbacks. And then finally it was a one-on-one meeting with Mr. Wise, the director, and Saul Chaplin, the uh, musical director and producer, and I was the first—I was the first one chosen. So uh, then they flew me out to LA, and they cast all the other six. And then so everyone flies off to Salzburg to make the movie yeah. at that point. Yeah. So you fly out to Salzburg, and of course that's—and then you're going to meet. Julie Andrews, the well, woman who, who you thought was who inspired you to become an actor in the first place. Well, part. actually, Richard, we, we shot a few of the interior scenes before we went because we had a long rehearsal period and we recorded the cast album. And the first thing we shot was My Favourite Things, which is a thunderstorm scene. Oh, where, yes, right. You all jump onto the bed. And, all, um, and this is exactly what happened to me because no one knew who Julie Andrews was. I mean, she'd done Mary Poppins, but it hadn't come out. So, like, the crew is not treating her. You know, she's a 27-year-old English girl. And she didn't get the screen part in My Fair Lady and, either, did she? And she didn't Audrey get Audrey Hepburn got that's it instead. Right, because she wasn't. But you see, this is, again, where Robert Wise, his, his cleverness as a director... He had seen he had seen some footage from Mary Poppins, and he thought that That's has her. to be her. So this means you get to meet her, though. And, well, this is right. And how was she with you? When, well, wonderful. You, she was wonderful, but I couldn't understand why the other six kids weren't in awe of her. Ah. The way I'm sitting in my pajamas <laughs> on the end of the bed, thinking this is the woman I saw on stage as Eliza Doolittle. You know, so I I was in awe with her the first day. I'm still in awe of her. This was still in like kind of come towards the end of the old Hollywood period and the star system. So it she was. wasn't famous then. No. Neither was Christopher Plummer no. when he was cast. No, they were both unknown in Hollywood. And I'm pretty sure Angela Cartwright hadn't been in Lost in Space at that point no, either. No, she did. She'd right? been in a show called The Danny Thomas Show right? when she was about four. And, and so she had a... a bit of a tiny bit of a child star following. But the others, I mean, Kim Carrath, who played the baby one, Gretel, she'd done a couple of movies. 
but I was by far and away the most experienced of any so, of them. So was there any who was was there a, who was the link to the old Hollywood? The actress who played the Baroness, Eleanor she, Parker. Yeah, she'd been a big star. In, she? in, in fact, it's interesting because I can well remember to this day among the crew, and particularly the old timers on the crew. She was the one that got all the deference. She was the one to whom their behavior was, we are in the presence of a star. And Eleanor behaved like an old-fashioned movie star. You know, I mean, she knew how to be a star. And, you know, whereas Julia would be like mucking around, telling us jokes, you know, teaching us limericks and, you know, riddles and all that. And Christopher was quite aloof and stayed away, which by design, because he knew it was better if we didn't become too friendly with him. And but Eleanor would sweep onto the stage with her cigarette holder and her chair with Miss Parker written on the back. And, you know, you really felt you were in the presence of old, old Hollywood. There were a lot of remnants of old Hollywood on that film. Most of our crew had come off of Cleopatra. And so we heard lots ah. of stories <laughs> about Elizabeth Taylor right. and Richard Burton. And, and you know, and, and what a lot of people don't realize is, is that Cleopatra basically bankrupted 20th Century Fox. And they pulled all the money they had in the world by selling off their back real estate, which was the back lot, which is now called Century City in Los Angeles. But that was their back lot. They raised about $15 million for it in those days. and To pay for the sound of music? To pay for the sound of music. And Daryl Zanuck had to gamble, do I risk it all on one big movie or do I make like three $5 million movies, which in those days was a fair bit of money. And he decided, I'm going to roll the dice on one movie. And if The Sound of Music hadn't worked, there would be no 20th Century Fox today. With a cast of unknowns as well. That's right. About singing nuns and kids (laughs) and Nazis. Right. And and the most wholesome movie in the world being made in the mid-1960s. That's right. At a time where people said, you're nuts. (laughs) This is Conversations with Richard Weidler. So when you began with The Sound of Music, you the production of movies like that, Nicholas, they require all sorts of things from you. They require you, you, you most of the time to get up at dawn mm. uh, for makeup and costume and then you just hang around all day a lot of the time. <laughs> How did Julie Andrews entertain you between scenes? Oh, she taught us songs. Uh, she taught us how to say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which we thought was a word she just invented because Mary Poppins hadn't come out. And she taught us all kinds of – she played games with us. You know, she was very clever. She is very clever. She knew that it was very important on screen that we look like we absolutely adore her and that we delight in her presence and that she makes us constantly smile. And she also knew she was dealing with some of the children who had never been in front of a camera before and really didn't know the difference between when the camera was on and when it was off. So she knew she had to create that state of being for the seven of us, and which she did effortlessly, and we did all completely adore her. Whereas Christopher Plummer knew it was very important that we always feel like we're on eggshells around him, We always have to feel careful in our behavior, never do anything wrong. So Christopher did not do that. And we thought at the time, oh, he's a grumpy guy. He doesn't like us. In fact, again, he was just being very strategic. He knew 
that it was by keeping his distance that then when they did say action, we would be on eggshells around him. So they were both, well, of course, that's why they're such good actors. I mean, and Christopher went on to have an extraordinary career before he passed away. And so they, we, I realized in retrospect, especially since I've often played dads myself now, and I know that's what you do when you're working with young children playing your children, is you, you just get them into the state you want them to be in when the camera's rolling. Now, you're filming in Salzburg, mm. and it was being made in the 1960s, well after what they might have called the recent unpleasantness. <laughs> uh, how, did the, how did Salzburg feel about you making a movie about the in- encroachment of the Nazis upon they, their fine city? They didn't like it. Uh, they didn't like it. I mean, I don't think they really knew what the movie was. All they knew was there was a big Hollywood production there that was blocking all the streets and dragging cables everywhere and causing a lot of trouble. And, of course, they realised that in the story they were – it was a World War II story or just before the war, 1939. And, you know, Austria itself and the city of Salzburg, you know, has a very troubled past. Let's face it, Hitler was Austrian. That's right. And they welcomed him very enthusiastically. They welcomed him mm. enormously enthusiastically uh, all over the country. Well, and many of them did. I should and, be yes, careful about that. Well, yeah. You know, and and um, the fact that the movie kind of makes it look like the Von Trapp family is an outlier as the only family not going along with it. So, no, they didn't like it and they didn't really particularly want us there. Uh, they did a lot to try to obstruct us from being there. And we didn't get much cooperation from them. And also the weather was very bad. So what was meant to be a six-week shoot ended up being a 12-week shoot. So I hadn't realized as a child, you know, how difficult uh, it was. And, of course, this fact that the whole studio would collapse if they pulled the plug on the movie, which they were close to doing as we ran over budget so much. And um, the mayor of Salzburg in particular, he uh, he didn't want these people here. God knows what his past history had been or his family. Indeed. How did he feel about, you know, swastikas being at the front of buildings, people wearing swastika armbands, that he, sort of thing? He didn't want it. At first he said, no, you can't do it. That's illegal. We're not allowed to show Nazi insignias in Salzburg, which is the truth. But they said, yes, but this is a movie. I mean, these aren't real soldiers. These are extras dressed as soldiers and they're wearing costumes. No. No, cannot do it, cannot do it, cannot have them in in brown shirt uniforms, cannot have them with guns, <laughs> cannot have them with Nazi armbands on. But it happened. But it happened. So finally, Robert Wise, who was the sweetest, kindest man in the world, our director, very gently, very calmly said, oh, OK, well, in that case, I guess we'll just have to use all the newsreel footage of Hitler being greeted as a hero by the cheering masses of Salzburg when his open car Mercedes arrived and drove along the length of the Salzach <laughs> River. And, and suddenly the mayor thought it wouldn't be quite so bad. Right. So, so if you see the movie again today, you will notice that the one compromise they made is as the soldiers march across the square, they are not carrying guns. That's the only compromise. <laughs> well, later on you took part in the BBC documentary about the Von Trapp family, who mm. were real. They yes, were a oh, real yeah. musical family. and they, Indeed. Although the... Sound of Music isn't closely based on their history. By and large, it's true. What, what did you learn about their their, their need to flee Nazi, yeah. the encroaching Nazi Well, that was all regime? absolutely true. I mean, the circumstances were different. I, I, I made this documentary for the BBC because I actually thought, in many ways, the Von Trapp's real story is every bit as interesting, if not more interesting. But I've become good friends with a lot of them now. Johannes Von Trapp, who's sort of the head of the family now, uh, about my age, and I... 
he and I are good friends. Uh, you know, they did have to leave. The difference is, which to me is a fascinating story in its own right, the Von Trapps had become already quite famous in Austria and Germany. They did mainly classical German choral music, very old German folk music. And unbeknownst to them, one of their biggest fans was Adolf Hitler. And oh, no. Because, you know, all that stuff that harked back to the old days of Teutonic history and German, you know, culture and oh, German... Oh, culture, yes. Exactly, yeah, all is, that. And this to was him, big with Hitler. Mm. To him, the family was the embodiment of all that. And he thought they were great. So what actually did happen, the true story is, is... It wasn't the captain getting a telegram saying you have to report to Bremerhaven to take on your post. What they got was they got an invitation to Hitler's birthday party and to perform at the birthday party. And it was Maria von Trapp, the younger wife, who said, if we go to that party, we're in the Nazi party. If we don't go to that party, there's a target on our heads, you know. We've got no choice. We have to get out and get out now. And so it was actually the invitation to perform for Hitler that made them make the decision. And they, they left Salzburg on a train to Italy that night. And they arrived at Ellis Island in New York with $4 in their pocket. And at that point, 10 children, because Maria and the captain had had three of their own. So, you know, they arrive, as Johannes tells me, you know, my mother had $4 and 10 children. And just through the unbelievable determination of that woman, she got them off of Ellis Island and they started literally busking like outside German beer halls and German, you know, cultural centers around Manhattan, around Philadelphia. Uh, she was a deeply religious woman. So they often appealed to churches for a place to stay. And little by little, they scraped together enough money to buy an old broken down school bus. And they painted that they took the Von Trapp off then because of the war. And they said the Trapp family singers. And they toured America playing in little towns across the country, making money, the girls sewing the costumes, the boys driving the bus. And uh, they finally made enough money to buy a little farm in Vermont. And that's what they thought they were going to do for the rest of their lives, was just be Vermont farmers. And then Maria wrote her memoir of those years, and it came to the attention of Oscar Hammerstein. And he approached them about getting the rights, and that just changed their lives forever. So this lovely, very, very wholesome musical has these very deep wellsprings to it. Mm, these very absolutely. stories of, of honour and family and allegiance, conflicted allegiances and exile and all those things. So maybe that's, talks, that really does speak to the underlying power of the musical, perhaps. Well, I think you've just answered the question that is the question I'm most often asked, which is, why is it the global phenomenon it is and continues to be, you know, a 55-year-old movie? And I think it's exactly those themes. I think those are universal parts of the human condition, loyalty to family, love of family, loyalty to country, love of country, mothers for their children, husbands for their wives, siblings for each other, uh, and that sense of duty and dedication uh, to something decent and good. And I think even people whose lives might be very far removed from that, they like to think that that's there. 
I can't tell you the number of times people have come up to me and said, you know, I had a really rotten childhood for whatever reasons, a myriad of reasons. But I would watch The Sound of Music and I would always say to myself, that's the sort of family I want to be a part of. And they would sort of adopt, depending on what age they were, one of us as the child that they most related to. And to this day, when I get together with the other cast members, we, we all talk about that, that we all had people who wanted to be Gretel or wanted to be Brigitte or wanted to be Friedrich or, you know, Liesel. And we were kind of a surrogate family for the entire globe. And it seems kind of still are because it doesn't seem to be diminishing. We've got to fast forward a bit here into the 1970s. And I want to talk about this because I'm actually a fan of this movie. You were the first on screen Spider-Man, yeah. the first one. And just quietly, I'm a bit furious they didn't get you to make a cameo in No Way Home alongside Toby, Toby Maguire and everyone else. There are quite a few people who yeah, are yeah. furious well, about I know, I'm not going to ask you to speak to that, but yeah. I'm just a bit furious about it. I actually really like that movie. It seems to be really inspired by Hong Kong action movies or like, yeah. like Enter the Dragon or something. Yeah, yeah. It's rapid-fire action cutting. It is. Uh, right, and quite hair-raising stunts because they're real. They're not, they're they're, real. They're not CGI. Yeah, the fights are real fights. The building climbs are real climbs. Yeah. The jumps are real jumps. But I think you're right about the Hong Kong style. And I think part of that is simply budgetary limitations. I think both the Asian movies and our movie, and I can call it a movie because around the world it was released in cinemas as a film, they did use that style of rapid cuts, uh, jump from here to here. Uh, and yet, having created the role of Peter Parker, having been the very first one to embody him as a human being, it's something I'm very proud of because I do think it set the template for what has now become a multi-billion dollar franchise. And we we loved doing the show. We had huge fun doing it. It also does this thing that Hong Kong movies do, which is it just ups the ante continually. That's right. Like constantly. there's a moment where you as Spider-Man take out eight ninjas. That's right. right. You take them out. Take out eight ninjas, right? Nine but more they, arrive. And they, they, come, they come back with flamethrowers. That's you know, right. <laughs> you see, that's what I want to see yeah. in an action movie. It's like kind of this insane escalation. Yeah. Which is, which, up and which up is, and up. Yep. Which is fantastic. Yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, Sometimes, though, of course, I know the stunts were done by proper sure. stuntmen, but there was a stunt you were involved with that kind of went almost pear-shaped with a garbage truck. Can you tell me how that worked? <laughs> yes, I can. It was one of the very first times I actually had the suit on, and um, they hadn't yet worked out the thing with the eyepieces. Uh, so it, you couldn't properly see it? I couldn't because right. it would fog up almost immediately. <laughs> I mean, they were basically just sunglass lenses right. at first. You know, it was all pretty low-tech, and um, it was basically wearing a big piece of spandex with two sunglass lenses in it and and boots. And they say, all right, Nicholas, you just run across, you run across the top of the building. You know, it's going to look like you're 20 stories up, but you're actually only like two stories up. And it's fine because when you get to the end, all you do is you just do a little gentle roll off the top of the building. And as as you do, the garbage truck will go below you. And don't worry because it, it looks like garbage in there that you land on, but it's actually all these foam mattresses and all that. So I thought, oh, okay. And, of course, at that point, you know, you, I think, well, I've got my own TV series. You know, I've wanted this for a long time. If this is what you do, this is what you do. So I ran off the building, couldn't see a thing. You know, I hear down below this of this truck, and I'm thinking, gee, I hope that truck's under me when I, when I run off the side of the building. And it was, and I did the roll, and I landed flat on my back on these mattresses. 
but the stench of the garbage. <laughs> because, yes, they, they cleared the garbage out, but, you know, it's a garbage truck. It's a garbage truck. truck. It's, it's, gar- it's got garbage juice in it. It's, it's got smell garbage it. juice. And yeah. it's garb- mm. So I'm lying in this thing, and the truck's lumbering along and lumbering along. <laughs> and finally I looked up at the director, and I said, are you sure Errol Flynn started this way? <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of broke the ice because I think they were all thinking, oh, my God, we've just injured the star of the show. Well, I'm going to jump ahead a bit more now. You moved to Australia in the 1980s and yeah. you've been a resident and now a citizen of, of, of Australia. Then Quentin Tarantino cast you in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few years ago. Yeah. Did he tell you what he'd seen you in? Because I thought he could have seen you a lot of like The Sound of Music, obviously, but he also might have seen you in like Australian 80s telemovies, yeah. which he was always a fan of. He, he might have seen you in this or that. He could have seen yeah. you in Spider-Man. But what, did, what was the thing that made him want to cast you in that? Well, and this made sense to me once I saw what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was about. He had seen me in a lot of Westerns. Uh, when I first got out to Hollywood after university, I did a movie with Charlton Heston. But then after that, I basically did almost two years of nothing but Westerns. I did a lot of episodes of Gunsmoke. I did a show called Dirty Sally. I did uh, uh, my own pilot, which was called The Deputy. Uh, I did tons of Oregon Trail and then eventually went on to Dallas. Um and I think Quentin had seen virtually all of them. I mean, there is nothing Quentin has not has seen. Has not seen, that's I mean, right. And there's yeah. no actor in the world yeah. he doesn't know about. But so what happened was, it, just to go back, that first Spider-Man that was released theatrically around the world, he ran it at his movie theater in the New Beverly. And I knew that every movie that ran at his theater was a movie he had curated personally himself. And I've been an enormous Tarantino fan forever. And so I said to my manager, I was just thinking, not in terms of get working with him necessarily, but I thought, I'd love to meet that guy. He's so cool. And if he's run my movie, it sounds like he kind of liked the movie. And I said, look, if you happen to speak to any of his people, if he wants to talk about Spider-Man, next time I'm in L.A., I'm delighted to talk to him. Well, like a week later, Quentin would like you to come to his office four o'clock tomorrow. And I was in New York. I flew to L.A. I went into his office and we talked a bit about Spider-Man, you know, and, and he had a poster he wanted me to sign. And, you know, I mean, he is the ultimate geek fan of everything. So we talked about Spider-Man a bit. Then he wanted to start talking about, you know, oh, you worked with Warren Oates in that episode of, you know, of, of you know, whatever, of Gunsmoke. And, you know, and, and wasn't, you know, and James Arness was, you know, when he shoots you at the end and he, he knew everything. And so I thought, well, this is... Interesting. I'm talking for almost two hours with Quentin Tarantino. I don't know where this is going. And then he said, um, did you ever see a, a pilot called Lancer? And I said, no. He said it was directed by Sam Wanamaker. And I said, you, you mean the Sam Wanamaker who built the Globe Theatre in London? And he said, yeah, yeah, but he was also a director. And I said, oh, yes, I think I knew that. And I said, I, I remember seeing him in a movie called The Competition with Richard Dreyfuss. He said, that's right. That's right. And then he said... And in that movie, he wears a white turtleneck with a cardigan over his shoulders. It's the coolest look ever. And and a gold medallion around his neck. And I said, oh, that's right, he does. And then he said, well, Lancer is this one he directed. And he said, it's kind of cool. And he said, here's a copy of the of the DVD. And I said, oh, good, thank you. I, I've got to go, Quentin, because I'm leaving to fly back to Sydney tonight. And I've got to get to the airport. So I left at about 6, 
to go out to the airport and I called my manager and I said, well, that was fascinating and he's an extraordinary guy. I don't know what it all means. He said, you've just been offered the role of Sam Wanamaker. Well, this is a really fascinating moment in the movie for me because this is the scene you appear in. I'm going to play a bit of the audio from the yeah. scene you appear in with, <laughs> with uh, Leo DiCaprio. Mm. And it's, it's meant to signify the moment in 1969 when the Hollywood Western shifts from the John Wayne age yeah. to the Clint Eastwood age. Yeah. Mm. First off, I want to give him a moustache. A big, droopy, Zabata-like moustache. Now, Rick, about your hair. Oh, what about my hair? I want to go with a different hairstyle. Something more hippie-ish. You want me to look like a hippie? <laughs> well, think less hippie, more <laughs> Hell's Angel. Rum, rum. <laughs> 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 and the way he shot that is like yeah. a really tight, yeah. sort of really tight. Me leaning in shot, on him. Leaning in. And it's shot the same way he shoots that scene with Christopher Walken in in uh, Pulp Fiction. I know it's this one, kind yeah. of great co- comic sort of cameo. And watching that, there's a very precise amount of comic energy in that mm. scene that's very well performed by you and directed by him. Are you kind of aware of that? About yeah. like if it's, if you arced it up a little more, it'd be too cartoony. If it was down, it wouldn't be funny enough. It's just it's kind of just right in that scene. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, really, essentially, I think almost every character in that film is seen through the eyes of Rick Dalton, and I mean that's the journey you're on, and I think the terror that somebody like Sam Wanamaker would have put into Rick Dalton because he's now suddenly in a whole new world yeah. he doesn't understand. You're not as, a John Ford movie anymore. Well, and you're yeah. not doing 77 Sunset yeah. Strip, you know, kooky, kooky, get me your comb. You know, it's now you're doing things that are gritty, you know. In fact, Quentin and I, one of the things we talked about a lot was Easy Rider and how Easy Rider changed things, you know, and early Polanski and stuff like that. And that's a world that is foreign to Rick Dalton and that's a world that Sam Wanamaker wants to embrace. So, yes, I think I think we needed to just hit that balance. Uh, and there are a couple of other scenes that didn't make it into the cut where we go further with that, where I start giving him Shakespearean analogies of how the character is a bit like Edmund in King Lear and how he's a bit like Hamlet. And, of course, Rick Dalton has absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. But, um, yeah, it was that idea of kind of put the fear of God into him, and yet at the same time keep telling him how good I think he is. And you're leaning right into the shot. Yeah, I yeah, really like right that too. Right into it. Right into the shot. And right you're bringing all it. that kind of amazing comic energy to it. Is it true that Quentin Tarantino forbids like iPhones? Mm. No uh, electronic devices. No electronics devices on no the No electronic devices. He films on old 35 millimeter cameras, no digital cameras, uh, no electronic devices. He doesn't use what every director uses now, which is a video split to watch the scene. Quentin stands next to the camera watching the scene and he wants the entire crew to watch the scene. So when you're in a scene in one of his films, you've got anywhere between 75 and 100 people all watching you do the scene. So in a way, it's almost like doing a little piece of theatre because on a lot of shows you work on, people are on their phones, they're sending text messages, they're looking at their iPads. It's really rude. Well, it kind of is rude, but they're doing their work but they're not focused on what Quentin wants them to be focused on at that moment. You know, he, he said something to me once and, and I thought, yes, that's, that's your secret. That's why you are as great as you are. He said, you know, in every scene I direct, even if it's with two people who have only got two lines in the movie and you're never going to see them again, he said, but for that scene, those two people are the stars of my movie. And he treats you like you're the star of his movie. 
And, you know, and, and I think that's why with some people, the best work you ever see them do in their lives is in a Quentin Tarantino movie. The other role you play in that movie is you, and maybe Kurt Russell as well, but you are the living connection to the old Hollywood. Yeah, but Kurt and I both are. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, from The Sound of Music for you and also from your appearances in Gunsmoke back mm. in the day as mm. well, uh, you are that kind of – were you conscious of that at the time? You, you're sure. You've got the institutional memory. Like, you know – Very much so. Tarantino reveres it, but he didn't live through it and didn't work no. through it. No. Well, he, he didn't work through it. Do you no. know, Richard, the first time I walked on the set, which was the Lancer Western set – and, you know, it was all dressed with the stagecoaches and the horses and the old-fashioned arc lights and the old-fashioned cameras. And I walked on and I, it, it was just time traveling. I had just walked on to exactly what a set was like when I was 21 years old. And everything was exactly this. And I told him. And, you know, and I mean, he knew it because his, his attention to detail is beyond anything you can possibly believe. Um, even the Carmen Gear car that, uh, that Cliff, <laughs> that Cliff both drives is the car I had when I first went to, for, I bought for $700 a Carmen Gear. Good God. And that was the car I used to go to studios in for auditions and when I worked. Now you're appearing on stage, about to tour in yeah, Cinderella. That's right. Now, Rogers and Hammerstein musical, again, What's your role in that? I play uh, the Lord Chancellor Sebastian, who basically in this new version by Douglas Bain, uh, the prince is Norfolk, and he's been raised by me as the Lord Chancellor. But what he's not aware of is I've been keeping him in a kind of a golden cage and hiding from him my corruption, my abuse of the people. Oh, you're the villain. I am in a sense the villain. And, and instead of him rescuing Ella... Ella rescues the prince. She saves him from me. And I get my redemption in the end because it is a fairy tale. But that's not to say if you're going to see the pumpkin and the carriage and the glass sipper and the ball and the princess and the prince, you're going to get all that. But under that, you're going to get this very interesting story of political intrigue and a power struggle basically between the girl, Ella, and me. And who's going to win? Who's going to win the prince? For their for their own purposes. Now, now Julie Andrews was the original Cinderella in the Rogers and Hammerstein. She was the original one. Yes, in, in fact, and, and does she know you're doing this? Oh yes, she knows I'm doing it. I got a beautiful message from her for the opening night. Uh, I, I saw Julie at the American Film Institute Awards last month when she won the the uh, the Lifetime Achievement, and I was the presenter. And she said to me, well, Nikki, it's come full circle now. And, and it has. And funnily enough, when I saw her at the Drury Lane when I was nine, what I didn't realize was is just before she'd flown to London to do that, she had done Cinderella for television. They wrote the show for her, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And the audience that comes to the Lyric Theater will see this, hear the same music and the same songs that were written for Julie all those years ago. So it's a total thrill for me to be in it. Nicholas, it's been an absolute joy to speak with you today, to hear Thank about you, your Richard. remarkable life on stage and screen. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations.
Remember a time when you had one good outfit? Now the average Australian buys 56 items of clothing a year. And it feels like we're on a fast fashion treadmill that's kind of hard to get off. So, how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of Threads, the podcast that undresses the fast fashion industry. From the marketing tricks that are being used on us right now... They're going to use social media to hunt down their prey. Bang, 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 bang. ...to the lies. So, greenwashing is a marketing strategy that gives you a reason to buy. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Threads. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.